Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Robert Hooks, and you are listening to TV Confidential, and keep doing it. Ed Robertson, welcoming you to this week's edition of TV Confidential Radio. Talk to you about television that will welcome Pat Boone in our second hour. Pat Boone, the legendary singer, actor, author, and all-around entertainer who not only recently marked his 70th anniversary in show business, but who will celebrate his 90th birthday this coming June 1st. Pat Boone recently released his 25th album called Country Jubilee. We'll ask him about that. Plus, we'll talk about a new single that Pat released just a few weeks ago that pokes fun at tattoos that seemed like a good idea to get at the time, but which people later regret. We'll talk about that and more when Pat Boone joins us in our second hour. We hope you stay tuned for that. In the meantime... If you follow our friend Phil Grice on social media, you may be aware that his critically acclaimed direct cinema documentary, Harlem School 1970, will be screened this coming Thursday, March 14th at the Maisel's Documentary Center in New York City. Before he embarked on his long career as a cinematographer and television archivist, Phil Grice taught elementary school for three years in Harlem, New York. Harlem School 1970 captures a day in the life of Community School 31, the public schools where Phil taught, and as such provides a window into some of the challenges, exhaustion, gratification, and joy that students, teachers, and faculty all experience on a typical day from the opening bell in the morning to final dismissal at the end of the day. You might recall that we talked to Phil about Harlem School 1970 in early 2018, shortly after he first released the film to the public. This being Black History Month, we will replay our conversation with Phil as part of our program this week as we pick up the conversation we asked Phil. What led you to make the film originally, Phil, and... What led you to decide that now was the time to release it to the public? From uh, September 1967 through June 1970, uh, I was a full-time elementary school teacher in Harlem, New York. And in the third year, uh, we moved to this brand new complex. And fortunately for me, lost this film never would have taken place I did not have a class. The first two years, I had a second grade, fourth grade, and third grade class. This particular third year, my final year, I was a um, media supervisor. I had extra time on my hands. I knew that this would be my last year. Jane and I, my wife, would be moving to uh, L.A. in September of 70. 
so that uh, I could uh, literally finally start my professional career as a cinematographer. I approached the principal. I thought this would be a great opportunity to do a film that I could show looking for work. And also, um, in the back of my mind, I thought this might be a film that I could present as the um, icing on the cake that I needed to get my official master's degree from UCLA. I had taken all my course content classes, but I did not do a thesis film. And I had gone to UCLA 66, 1967, and then came back and started to teach. This would give me maybe um, an opportunity to get that thesis film. So those were my main motivations. And a third motivation was I had taught for two and a half years. It was an exhausting experience. I had observed so much that went on. Uh, what was it like to be a young uh, Afro-American uh, in Harlem at that time? And what was it like to uh, day in and day out be a teacher? So I wanted to capture that experience, and, and that was my goal. You mentioned you approached the school at the start of the 69-70 school year to obtain their consent to make the film. Obviously, they ultimately cooperated with you. Was it an easy sell? Did they have reservations? Were there obstacles? Of- you got to remember, uh, I had been teaching for two years plus, and uh, everyone knew me. Uh, it was a new principal, though. This was a first-year principal, first-year school. This was the first premier year for, uh, at the time it was called Community School 30, now it's PS, Public School 30. And um, I had done little films here and there in the past, and I had shown it to um, teachers and students and parents over a period of a couple of years. So I was a known entity. It was not like I was a stranger coming into an institution, pulling out a camera, and certainly today, forget it. <laughs> this could never be done today without huge amount of money, luck, and uh, pulling arms. I had no formal permission. It was basically a handshake, and I had mentioned it to the principal. And it was not in September. It was really in the uh, spring of uh, 1970, the last half of that year. And he said, fine, you know, and, and nobody really interfered with me, not, not a teacher, not a parent, not a student. I, uh, I was basically seamless, invisible, and uh, I had no restrictions. Well, it's, you certainly benefited from not only the fact that uh, you are a known entity, you know, uh, you are a trusted colleague, you are a trusted friend. I'm, I'm sure, you know, teacher to teacher, you had many conversations, you know, before you even thought about making the film. So you understood what it was like to be a teacher and, you know, the challenges that you and your colleagues faced every day. And so as, as opposed to someone coming in from the outside who has to earn that trust, you that wasn't a problem. That wasn't a problem going into it. But as you as you say, you also benefited from the fact that times were different then in, in a lot of ways, e- even though this is 6970, it's at the, you know, uh, you know, civil rights, the country, the culture was changing every day as we speak. But at the same time, it was it was also a simpler time in that you can make a documentary like that in an inner city public school. It would be a lot more of a hassle to try to get the consent to do that today. Well, um, what's really interesting to me, and I've done tons of research over the past half year, 
I've seen over 30 films again, some of them for the first time that relate to direct cinema, uh, which is shooting uh, mostly candidly, without interviews, without narration. It was a whole new way of making documentaries in the 60s. I have not found one other film, documentary, that shows a day in the life of an elementary school, much less an inner city elementary school, until 1993. Uh, it's amazing to me. No one else ever did this. And I did this in 1970 at a time when there were a handful of filmmakers doing direct cinema. And um, I just did it out of necessity because unlike others, I was a complete one-man band. I did it all. I had no help on this film. I did the sound. I did the cinematography. I edited it. I did the still photography. I wrote it, produced it, directed it. It was all me. And the equipment I had was very, very crude. So in that sense, I look back with astonishment related to what I actually did myself. Phil Grace is with us as we discuss Harlem School 1970, the only known feature-length documentary filmed inside an actual inner-city public elementary school in the United States during the 60s, 70s, or 1980s. For our listeners on the East Coast, particularly those in the tri-state area, there will be a screening of Harlem School in 1970 at the Maisel's Documentary Center in New York City on Thursday, March 14th, beginning at 7 p.m. In addition to the screening of Harlem School 1970, the evening will also include a screening of a short film the film made in April 2018 with Iris Maxwell. Iris was one of the second graders and third graders that Phil Grace taught between 1967 and 1969. Plus, she is one of the students featured in Harlem School 1970. After the screening of Harlem School 1970 that night, there will also be a panel discussion of the film featuring Phil Grace, Iris Maxwell, and preservationist Ben Wolf. More information on the Thursday, March 14th screening of Harlem School 1970 in New York City, go to mazels.org, M-A-Y-S-L-E-S, mazels.org. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One more item if you want to eat better this year. Our friends at Factor are the perfect solution. They have more than 35 pre-prepared, ready-to-heat and ready-to-eat, chef-crafted, restaurant-quality, and dietitian approved meals that will make eating better every day, fun, and delicious, and your weekly meal planning a whole lot easier with no prepping, no cooking, and no cleanup necessary. Check it out yourself by going to factormeals.com forward slash talk. TV50. Astrid and I recently checked out some of Factor's keto selections, including their roasted tomato and feta cavatappi with broccoli and red peppers, and the garlic and herb roasted mushrooms 
while their three bean chili with quinoa is just the right size for lunch. We also enjoyed their chocolate banana smoothies, which is just one of the many healthy and nutritious options for breakfast and midday bites that are ready to eat and, best of all, less expensive than takeout. Sign and save right now by going to factormeals.com forward slash talk TV 50. Use promo code talk TV 50 to get 50% off your order. That's code talk TV 50 at factormeals.com forward slash talk TV 50 to get 50% off. Hi, this is Robert Hooks and you are listening to TV Confidential and keep doing it. We talked a little bit about the direct cinema style of approach. On the one hand, it's very innovative because, as, as we just mentioned, uh, it allows the viewer to draw their own conclusions. On the other hand, to me, Phil, it also poses a risk because it is unconventional. And what I mean by that is, and I'm, I'm speaking partially from experience, uh, because I've watched a lot of documentaries. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have watched a lot of documentaries, and there is sort of an expectation that even if it's a minimal narrator, there is some sort of outside narrative that, that the film will follow. So, But you, you don't have that. So that, that, that's what makes it unique, but it also makes it unconventional. What inspired you to choose this particular style of filmmaking? I was always a student of film, and uh one goes way back to Robert Flaherty in The Nook of the North, Man of Iran, and he would certainly manipulate his uh, subjects to some extent. But for the first time, people would be able to feel that they were there in an environment and come away with an experience that they uh, would never know about other than National Geographic or some magazine. It was a different kind of real-life experience. What I like about cinema verite, and people use the word direct cinema, uh, cinema direct, everyone has their own um, definition for the word, but in, in reality, it all means the same. It's a feeling of uh, being there. And um, I like the fact that uh, one doesn't pontificate, one doesn't editorialize, one doesn't preach you come away with your own conclusions. The camera rolls. Obviously, I have to make a decision uh, who I am shooting, and I have to make a decision how I edit. But one tries to be as objective as possible to come away with an objective feel for the environment and the uh, subject material, and that was the approach that I elected to do when shooting Harlem School 1970. And... I was almost handcuffed anyway because I had no crew. I had to do it this way, even if I felt uh, otherwise. Yeah, but you could have, I mean, there, there's a brief introduction of you featuring you in present day that introduces the film and lays the groundwork and sets the stage for the film that the viewers are going to see. But, you know, you could have today, when you sat down and you got the film ready for its release, you, you could have put a narration in there, but you chose not to. Oh, absolutely not. I would be like uh, taking a diamond and uh, putting it uh, in a crackerjack box. Um, <laughs> the beauty of this film is its uniqueness and its direct cinema. I would, I would never have thought of changing that concept. Um, very few films were done in the 60s, direct cinema. Very few filmmakers. Um, and thinking back, most 
if not all, filmmakers like Robert Drew, Ricky Leacock, D.A. Pennybaker, who's still alive. He's 92. I'd like to meet him. I've, I've already sent him a copy. Uh, Albert Maisley. They were the ones who basically broke the mold and started to do direct cinema. Um, there's some very good examples. Uh, Albert Maisley did one on the Beatles coming to New York. The first one that is is, is considered uh, the, the granddaddy of them all is primary in 1960 when JFK was running in Wisconsin against uh, Hubert Humphrey. You were a fly on the wall, and they just developed this new kind of filmmaking equipment uh, for our audience. Prior to 1960, cameras were huge. You couldn't do quick sync sound, putting a camera on your shoulder. You were locked. It was like um, having uh, no other way of creating the spontaneity. Now you were able to free up the camera with sound. And that's what led to direct sentiment in the 60s. Phil Grace is with us as we discuss Harlem School 1970, the only known feature-length documentary filmed inside an actual inner-city public elementary school in the United States during the 60s, 70s, or 80s. Filmed during the spring of 1970 and recently restored digitally, Harlem School 1970 provides a rare look at a typical day in an actual public elementary school in Harlem, New York, circa April 1970. Harlem School 1970 is also an early example of direct cinema, a style of filmmaking that allows viewers to watch the narrative unfold themselves and shape their own meaning without narration or outside interviews. For our listeners on the East Coast, there will be a screening of Harlem School in 1970 at the Maisel's Documentary Center in New York City on Thursday, March 14th, beginning at 7 p.m. For tickets and more information, go to maisels.org, M-A-Y-S-L-E-S, maisels.org. Let's go back one step further. What led you to focus on documentary making versus any other kind of filmmaking? Well, when I made Harlem School 1970, I had already been shooting uh, amateur movies, home movies, um, student films, CCNY, UCLA for 13 years. So it wasn't like all of a sudden I picked up a camera and I did this for the first time. Um, most of my experience was doing um, this kind of filmmaking, not even knowing about it, except it was silent. And um, documentary was always a personal favorite of mine. Um, I, I briefly got into doing fiction film in my career. I would have liked to, in retrospect, done more uh, feature films. It just wasn't meant to be. And my, my journey kind of became cinematography, documentaries. And, and for um, almost 50 years, that's basically the bulk of my uh, output. Phil's credits as a cinematographer, by the way, include the Emmy Award-winning documentary Vermeer, Master of Light, as well as 88 Seconds in Greensboro, the Emmy-nominated documentary that uh, uh, originally aired on Frontline, as well as segments and behind-the-scenes footage of such shows as American Masters, Nova, 2020, The Sopranos, Oz, Sex in the City, Angels in America, Law and Order, and countless other network and 
cable TV shows. Harlem School 1970 is scheduled to be screened at the Maisel's Documentary Center in New York City on Thursday, March 14th, beginning at 7 p.m. Ticket to more information, maisels.org, M-A-Y-S-L-E-S, maisels.org. What is remarkable, Phil, is watching the kids interact both inside and outside the classroom without playing to the camera. Now, kids being kids, I can't imagine that was easy to get them not to pay attention to the camera. How long did it take you before they finally started ignoring you? You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think one of the salient uh, positive aspects of this film, which you never see, and and I'm going to use the word never in bold letters, is that to get the colloquialisms and the language and the interaction of uh, eight and nine-year-olds and seven-year-olds, I've never seen that done. And uh, I accomplished that in Harlem School because I felt as important it is to get a feel for a day in the life uh, through the eyes of a teacher, I wanted to have the audience get as close to these kids as possible. Uh, 90% of these uh, young children had no fathers living in the home uh, at that time. Harlem was a tough neighborhood, uh, lots of uh, drugs. Um, they, they were hardened kids. Many of these kids, I, I, I wonder if they're even alive today. I have to uh, remind the audience that the way I was able to shoot a lot of this film was on the fly, non-sync. We will ask Phil how he did that, plus we'll find out more about the backstory of Harlem School 1970 when we continue our conversation here on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk tvconfidential.net talk at tvconfidential.net you can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential x.com forward slash tvconfidential or at tvconfidential on instagram and if you're listening to us on the tv confidential podcast please be sure to hit the subscribe button This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.